We are in 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter. We Specifically, we are in chapter 2. And uh, we're, we're again looking at verses 4 through 10 this morning. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible uh, with you here, there may be a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you, and I would invite you to grab that and flip that open to page 1014, and that would bring you right to where we are this morning in First Peter. So I, uh, I titled this message, Comprehending the Church, basically just drawing lessons about the church from, from this section of God's Word. Comprehend, the word comprehend simply means to grasp the nature, significance, or meaning of something, nature, significance, of, or meaning of something, and that's what we're attempting to do concerning the church. And, and as I mentioned last time and spent a little bit of time on when we uh, first looked at the text, Many people have a misunderstanding about the church. Certainly those that are not Christians have a misunderstanding, but even Christians can have, a, have some misunderstandings about the church. And as a result then, those who have these kind of misunderstandings uh, don't understand the very unique nature of the church and therefore its true significance and value. So, I mean, I just want to say that I think that there is a general a lack of esteem for the church, and I think that is derived from a misunderstanding of it. Uh, contrary to what a great number of people think, the church is not a physical building. It's not a physical building. It's not a place, and we, even Christians, we refer to it that way, I think, Maybe just because that's how we've always heard it being referred to. I've even thought about maybe should I change the way I talk about it? Instead of saying, you know, we say let's go to church, maybe we should say let's go gather with the church. Uh, because even though we may understand what the church is, we continue to speak of it in a way that it's not accurate, actually. We don't, we don't go to church because that sounds like we're going to a place, and the place is the church. Clearly, as you look at the Scriptures... Uh, it's not spoken of that way. So, for instance, let me just show you, Colossians 4.15. They do a better job of describing the church or how they speak about it. Apostle Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Right? It's, it's in her house. It's not the house. It's in her house. Uh, that kind of language is repeated again in several other places. For instance, 1 Corinthians 16.19. The churches, okay, the churches of Asia, so there's multiple churches, local churches, send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Uh, Also, Philemon, uh, verses 1 and 2, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, okay, sending greetings. You see how they speak about it? And of course, back then, that was the typical way that the community of God met together. They met in houses. They were house churches, if you will. But the house was not a church. Do you understand what I'm saying? You get the idea? 
but we often, like I say, refer to it that way. And certainly, I think if you asked the unbelieving world, they would, they would say, what is the church? Oh, that's a place where people go and have religious things happen, activities, whatever, or worship God. Uh, but that is a, a misunderstanding, a great misunderstanding, and misses really the value, because then it's just a building. Not much value in that, ultimately. Not much significance in that, if it's just a building. So the church is not a place. Rather, and what, what's more important, not just what it isn't, but what is it? What is it then? It is a very special group of people a unique community of people that exist and operate in many localities all over the world. We refer to them as local churches, local churches. But again, not local buildings, but local communities of people gathering together. And it is a people who by saving faith, not just any people, but a people who by saving faith have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ and together believe, trust, follow, and serve the resurrected and living Christ of the Bible. And what the Apostle Peter says concerning these people, this special community, and the, and the way he describes them is really important. I think to us having a proper and healthy understanding of the church, one that will cause us to truly value it and see it as we should. You with me so far? However, listen, even though the church is not a physical building or a place, a physical place, it is described in our text, if you, if you were here last week, you saw it, in First Peter, as a building of sorts. It's described that way. Or more specifically, Peter calls it a spiritual house. And that imagery is instructive concerning the church. It's very instructive. And we're drawing some lessons from that. So let's read the text. We'll review what we covered last time. And then we will we'll pick up from there, okay? So we'll read the entire section. And by the way, this is part two. There'll be a part three. We're going to come back to it again. Told you I was just going to go slow. Uh, intentionally. I want to drive home some of these points. We need to value the church, beloved. We need to see it rightly. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, if you will, as I read it. Apostle Peter writes this, As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word 
as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the text I just read, and this is a review, basically, Jesus Christ is referred to as a living stone. A living stone, right? You saw that in verse 4. And in verse 6, he is referred to as a cornerstone. Cornerstone. And as you might remember from last time, Palestinian structures, Palestine, the land, the biblical land where this, the people of God lived and where these... Uh, the word of God was written, this area, so it made sense to them. This is the culture they grew up in. Palestinian structures were commonly made of stone, okay? Not wood, uh, timber. And the word translated stone here in 1 Peter just happens to refer to a prepared building stone one that has been shaped for its place in the building, okay? So stone in our text is not referring to just uh, any stone, like ones you might find along the roadside or near a riverbed, but rather it refers to building stones, and that's important to the imagery, that you see that and understand that. He's not just a stone, not just a living stone or a cornerstone, some stone you find on the corner, This is a building stone. It intentionally is used to make a building. You with me? Also, the cornerstone of a building, we talked about this, was generally a very large stone. And uh, it was placed or laid at the corner of the foundation of the building. And it was designed to set all the correct angles and symmetry of the building and give strength and stability to the rest of the building. You see the imagery here? I hope you're starting to see it and get it. Because remember, who's the cornerstone of the church? Yes. And only after the cornerstone was in place was the rest of the building laid. See it? Jesus Christ is a large cornerstone, strong cornerstone of a building. But of what building? Well, we've already talked about it. The church, the community of believers. And he is not only the cornerstone, but he is also the living stone. The living stone. That's Peter's designation. You won't find that phrase anywhere else in the scriptures, uh, except there. He calls him a living stone. Why that designation? Remember, living stone, a living building stone. Well, because what do we know of Jesus? 
He's alive, okay? He's not dead, but he is very much alive. He is the resurrected, living Lord. And as the living stone, he is able to give or impart life to all the other stones that make up the church building. That is believers. Believers in him. Making them living stones as well, as we see Peter refers to them as in the text. So as believers, as those who make up the church building then, structure, if you will, our possession and hope of eternal life rest fully on the Lord Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, our living stone, who possesses and imparts to us that life. You got it? Now, just think with me for a moment. What does that do in your mind as far as elevating, when you think about the church now, what does that do when you think about Christ in relationship to the church? What, where does that put him? Low, middle, high, as far as your esteem for him, as far as his value. The other thing it does is he's not disconnected from the church because it's not just a building. He's the very cornerstone of this thing. He is the living stone of this thing. He is the one who is imparting life to all the other stones without him. Bunch of rubble. Dead, lifeless rubble. And so one conclusion we can draw from this imagery, beloved, is that Jesus Christ is absolutely everything to the church or the church building or to the community of believers. And again, when I say church building, I'm not talking about a physical building. I'm talking about the building that is the church. He is the church's life. He is the church's strength. He is the church's stability. He is their perfect foundation stone, the living stone on which the church is built. And as such, then, he should be highly valued and esteemed by the church above all else. Above all else. Yes? Yeah. So then it's entirely appropriate or fitting or right that the church make everything about him. Because he is, in fact, everything to them. Hmm? Yeah. Listen, for the church, that is the special community of God's people, to center or fix itself on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ would be to deny or ignore the special, unique, most important, and highly exalted place that Christ has in the church. You see? So, beloved... Just thinking this through with you. What we don't want to do is fall into the trap, as, an, as a, just an idea, that we are all prone to fall into, which is in one way or another making the church about us. 
making the church about us. Our wants, our desires, our glory, our fame. Do this in a variety of ways, you know. I mean, having been a pastor now for some time and watching plenty of people come and go through the doors, some come and go for various reasons, job situations, uh, they have to move. Others go for other reasons that maybe uh, I would say are not as are not honorable. Uh, they are they are frustrated on one level or another. Sometimes because some need of theirs, specific need, is not being met. Or the church isn't doing something that they think the church should be doing. Um, like we do in our own lives, they tend to let, we tend to let things center around us. But the church, beloved, by the way, that's never a good idea, but the church, beloved, It's very clear. It ain't about us. Ultimately, it's not about us. It is about Christ. So it is about his glory. So if you're doing something that draws away from that, it's no longer about him. It's about you. But the church isn't about you. And the quicker we figure that out, the happier and holier we will be and healthier, and more united, and stronger. It's about Christ's glory, Christ honor, Christ fame, Christ name, Christ desires, Christ wants, Christ will. It's about that. Or at least it should be. It should be. He is the living stone and cornerstone of the church building. And as such, he must remain the focus of the building. Huh? Any other focus, and we're out of focus. We're not seeing things rightly. I mean, I'm just, even something as simple as this that people probably, you know, maybe are not aware of some. Why do we gather on Sunday? Because that's the only day we can gather? Think about it. Why does the church, why has the church historically gathered together, the church gathered together to worship their God, to worship Christ on Sunday? Why? Huh? Yeah, the resurrection of who? Christ, the living one who gives life to the church. The whole thing is, a, the whole thing is supposed to be about him. And all the building stones of the building are supposed to be about him, looking to him, living for him. And thinking about the incalculable importance and value of Christ to the church, I was reminded, just as I process this, of something I read about Charles Spurgeon and his repeated uh, uh, challenges and appeals to make Jesus Christ a part of every sermon. Now, uh, if you don't know who he is, 
And that would make sense that you don't because he's been dead a long time. But, uh, but it's fascinating. Normally, they say that after you die, you'll be forgotten within a couple of decades. But he lived in the uh, 19th century, and still he is not forgotten. He continues to be talked about, you know, at least within the Christian community. But he was a pastor of a church in London. He was there for 38 years. And it was, uh, you know, again, when I say church in London, it was a particular assembly or congregation of believers or Christians who met in London. And as I said, he remains highly influential among Christians even today, and he has been referred to as the Prince of Preachers. If you can pick up any of his work, and it's still out there, pick it up and read it. I would highly recommend it. Now, here are a few of the things, though, just thinking about this, just this focus. It made me think of him, of Christ being all, and specifically as he applied that to the sermon. Here's a few things he said about the Christless sermon, the Christless sermon. And, and just understand that sometimes he overstates to make his point, but he does that on purpose to challenge his listeners. Okay? Here's one of his quotes. Leave Christ out of the sermon. Oh, my brethren, better leave the pulpit out altogether. If a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last. Certainly the last that any Christian ought to go to hear him preach. Anyway, he, you know, he was good at stirring it up, I'll tell you right now. Um, and he had, he had many followers. He had, he had many enemies as well. But I believe he was a faithful man, a man absolutely in love with Jesus Christ and in love with his church, defender of it. Here's another one, though, that I'd share with you. I know one who said, he's speaking of someone, I was always on the old string. What he means, like, always preaching about Christ. So, I, so now you got it. I know one who said, I was always on the old string, and he would come and hear me no more. But if I preached a sermon without Christ in it, he would come. Can you stop right there? Don't read. I'm just going to say there are plenty, I think, maybe that is an overstatement, but I'll stir it up too, churches who preach Sunday after Sunday. I'm going to say they're not, I'm, gonna, I'm using church in quotes And it is Christless sermons, one after another. Let me give you a name. Joel Osteen, okay? Biggest church in America. Okay. Ah, he will never come while this tongue moves. I love this guy. I want to meet him so bad when I get to heaven. (laughs) For a sermon without Christ in it, a Christless sermon... A brook without water, a cloud without rain, a well which mocks the traveler, a tree twice dead plucked up by the root, a sky without a sun, a night without a star. It were a realm of death, a place of mourning for angels and laughter for devils. O Christian, we must have Christ. Do see to it that every day when you awake, you give a fresh savor of Christ upon you by contemplating his person. Live all the day trying as much as lieth in you to season your hearts with him, and then at night lie down with him upon your tongue. Now, Spurgeon's passion to always proclaim Christ to the church to the church, to keep the believing community fixed and focused on Christ, to never preach a Christless 
sermon is absolutely fitting in light of what Christ is to the church. Because, beloved, he's everything. And as I said, seeing the church just as a physical building totally misses that point. It devalues the church. It, it, the imagery of that is, so what is that? It's nothing. But when I understand what the church is and who makes it up and who gives it life and on whom it is built, then the value of the church should rise high, 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 high in the Christian's mind. And I pray that we together will always strive to be and excel at being a Christ-exalting, Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Christ-adoring, Christ-honoring church. Because anything less misses the mark of what the church actually is. Now, I want to turn from the great cornerstone... That was mostly review. And I don't mind doing that so that you get to hear that again. I keep coming back at it. But we'll turn from the great cornerstone. We don't ever really turn away from him entirely. We're just, we're just going to glance over here. He's the great cornerstone and living stone of the church. That is Christ. And we're going to look at the other stones of the building or the structure that, by the way, are living because of him the living stone who imparts life to them. So look back at the text with me for a moment. See if we can draw some instruction about the church from this imagery. Verse 4 again, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves or you also, like living stones or as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, that last part of verse 5, we're going to get to that, and we're going to talk about the priesthood of believers, something that contradicts what the Catholic Church teaches, priesthood of all believers. We're going to talk about that next week, along with other matters, but this week, I just want to look at you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house or into a spiritual house. What is the spiritual house? Well, one writer says this. I think you know the answer already, but I just want to kind of go through it with you because I've already made reference to it. It's the church. But one writer says the structure being raised, built up, is a spiritual house. Collectively, here's the imagery, Christians constitute the house. They're what make the house up. I think Peter uses spiritual because it indicates its immaterial character. This is not a physical house, not a, a building of real stones or wood, but it's a spiritual house. The house is the church, a place devoted to the worship of God. Okay? One translation in the Bible puts verse 5 this way, and it's, it says it like this, You also are like living stones, as you come to him, you are being built into a house for worship. That is the church. Now, think about who's saying this. This is Peter, okay? Peter's the one writing this. 
And so thinking about Peter's encounters with Christ and what he saw Christ say, what he witnessed, and one writer comments, and he says this, no doubt these words that we just read here in 1 Peter reflect on Christ's great promises to Peter. Do you remember that? He said to him, I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. Peter was seeing this promise being fulfilled in the churches that he was writing to. And so he's describing that. But I want you to think a little bit further on the imagery here with me and how we can draw a lesson for ourselves about the church from it. One commentator points out that Peter's picture of Christ, remember what he said, he refers to him as a living stone, but not any stone, a building stone, okay? So Peter's picture of Christ, the living building stone, prepares the readers then for his subsequent development of the image of Christians as a corporate structure, corporate structure, okay? When you think corporate, uh, don't think of your job and there's that corporate, okay, the word corporate can mean relating to or formed into a unified body of individuals, corporate, relating to or formed into a unified body of individuals. So, Living stones, then, he's using this imagery, living stones make up a spiritual house, which I've been saying all along. You with me? It's the living stones. Collectively, Christians constitute the house of this house, the cornerstone being Jesus Christ. You see the picture, yeah? What do we draw from that? Well, we've already seen in this house, Jesus is the rock of all rocks, okay? It is all about him. But what about the other stones? Listen to this. Peter did not think of them, the believers to whom he was writing, as isolated stones scattered over a field. He pictures them collectively as forming a great spiritual house. They have been brought into a close and permanent union with one another, as fellow members of the house of God. Furthermore, a house is not a jumbled pile of stones. The image implies the orderly and purposeful arrangement of the individual stones, each shaped and placed to fulfill its assigned task. So what? So what? Here's so what. What are the implications? Here's here's an implication. The idea of Christians living out their Christian lives on this earth in isolation and not being committed to, part of, and involved with the local church or community of believers in their locality is foreign to the Bible. It's foreign, meaning you won't find it there. Now, maybe I'm preaching to the choir. You know, you're like, yeah, Jeremy, we're involved with, part of, and committed to the local church here. 
Okay, great. That's awesome. I'm glad you are. But just because you think rightly now, and by the way, there's probably some folks here who don't think that way. This is, maybe they're here, but they're not committed to it. They're not involved with it. They don't, they see it more as a place that you come. Do you understand what I'm saying? They see it that way. As opposed to, the Bible never sees it that way. The Bible never describes it that way. It's this building where the stones, the living stones, those who are getting their very life from the one they placed their faith in are put together, brought together in this house, very carefully, each one serving its assigned task and purpose, meaning that the church would come together to create this house in unity. Each one, think about, think about the building. Think about it. The more I thought about it, the more excited I got. You, as a stone in that building, okay, I not only support another stone, but I am supported by a stone. That was good. That was good. <laughs> because in my mind, this is what I, you know, I, I think about this. The church just, sometimes there's such like a kind of a lackadaisical kind of take it or leave it. Let me just say to you, that's, that's, a misun- that's at least, at minimum, a misunderstanding of the church for sure. The Bible just doesn't describe it that way. It's so much more than that, so much more beautiful, so much more glorious than that. You have a place in the church. You, find, you are to find your place there. God places you there and be that support and be supported by the other building stones of this church. That was God's design. But, beloved, how many do you know? How many do you know who claim, profess Christ, but live in isolation of the church? That doesn't make any sense. It's not good for them. It's not good for the church. It wasn't, that's not God's design. We, uh, oh, here's a plug. We, uh, we do discipleship here because that's what we're supposed to do. We have a discipleship course. And if, you're, uh, if you would like to know more about it, let us know on your connection card. We would love to talk to you about it. Folks are going through the process right now, and it's just a basic discipleship. We want to see the whole church go through so that they might grow in their grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and be able to help others and help them grow. But in our final course, or actually final lesson, it's on the church. It's on the church. And in that section, I'm just going to take right from it right now because we want to help people understand the nature of the church, the value of the church, the significance of the church. And so there we quote Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Listen, early church, listen. So those who received his word, that is Peter, Peter's preaching, okay? He's telling him, boys, you better repent. Repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. So those who received it, those who heard it and accepted his word, they, were, they believed, they were baptized, okay? They believed and were baptized. They identified with Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism, through his, in his death and resurrection, and then they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together 
and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, that's where they met, okay? At the time, they would just meet together in the temple and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those were being saved. And then this is what our comment is concerning that section of scripture concerning the church. And we say this, notice how those in Acts chapter two who were born again through faith in the Lord Jesus did not disperse after they were baptized and live out their new life in Christ in isolation. Rather, they committed themselves to the local community of Christians and shared their lives with those who had become their brothers and sisters in Christ. That was how it was done. That is how it should be done. That is by design, God's design. I'm going to break there. I'm going to break there. I just want you to think upon the church, beloved. Do you, do you value it rightly? Do you esteem it as you should? You will if you understand what it really is or what it's supposed to be. Not because I say so, but by God's design. He's the author of it. He's the creator of it. And uh, my desire, my, my prayer is that we would all see it rightly because if we see it rightly, we will treat it rightly. And that'll show up in the way that we commit ourselves to the body, how we serve one another, how we care for one another, uh, what we focus on, what we seek to exalt, raise up, praise, worship, not one another necessarily, not, our, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. So, brother, if you would... Come on up and lead us as we share together in communion.